Well, good evening. How are you doing? All right. We're, uh, we're, we're experimenting with different seating schematics, if you've noticed, and so and, uh, we had some spitting complaints. No, I'm just kidding. I spit when I talk. No, I'm just kidding. No, we are experimenting with some different seating schematics, so every week that you come in, it might look a little different, so just be patient with us. We're in a growth spurt as a church, which is a, a good problem to have, and, uh, and so we're just experimenting with different schematics, and so just, just be patient with us while we're, while, we're, while we're figuring that out. So also, you might notice if you come a little bit early, we, we're, some of the rows towards the back, we've marked them off to get you to shift to the front a little bit to make seating for people that might come in a little bit later. Sometimes visitors uh, come in a little bit later and so we want to make it easier for them to find a seat so you'll you'll get that's new for us too so uh, just it's it's part of you if you've called this your church home of saying it's not about me anymore it's about how I can help other people get to the place that I'm at you with me and that's going to be a huge part of the culture of our church it has been and it's, and it's going to continue to be so all right so I've got a couple of things before we get into the into the message tonight and uh, how many people went out to uh, dinner somewhere last uh, weekend after the anniversary service. Come on, it was awesome, wasn't it? So Monica and I had similar experiences to where we just assumed that everybody there was part of the church, and so we were outside of the Plaza Aztec in Hampton. There was a lady standing over there. I'm right over, hi, it's, I've never met you before. It's so good to see you. And, uh, and she's shaking my hand, and she says, I- I'm not in your party, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, you should be, right? Because we had a really good time. So Monica showed up at, uh, at uh, is it County, County Grill? Is that the name of it? Walked into the room that we had reserved, did not realize that we, we, we only had part of the room. So she walked in like with a big, hello, City Life, right? It was great. They were calling security. It was awesome. No, just kidding. So we had a great time. So how many, how many of the young people over here were at Plaza Azteca with me? On, I know, come on, in Hampton, I see you over there. And so they got their table last. It was all of our kids set together. There was about, I don't know, 11 or 15 of them. And so we all got seated as adults before. And, uh, and so Vanessa was like, I just feel so bad. I'm like, pass the chips. I've been on a 21-day fast. It's every man for himself, right? We were almost finished before they even got their table. And I thought, we can eat twice. This is great. And so, so, so I have a little verse to read some of the, the teenagers who were there with us. This comes out of Genesis 25, and uh, I'm going to start reading in, in verse 29. It says, one day Jacob was cooking some stew, and Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Verse 32 says, look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew, and Esau ate the meal and then got up and left. And we know how the story goes on. See, so last week, if you were here, we, we handed out a quarter to everybody, right? Did, right? If you weren't here, you didn't get your quarter. And so we handed out a quarter. That was, and you can listen to the podcast. If you weren't here, you should listen to the podcast because we cast our 2020 vision, our vision for the next six years. So we gave everybody a quarter, and that was symbolic for many, many reasons. But one is that everyone was supposed to keep that quarter all week, at least this week, to pray for the church, right? Most of these teenagers over here, they don't have their quarter. You know why they don't have their quarter? Because at the cash register at the Mexican restaurant where we were, you could get candy for a quarter. 
And if you want to find their quarter, you'll find it in that little plastic thing by the cash register, right? They're all Esau's, every last one of them. Terrible. They sold the vision of the church, right, for a Tootsie Pop. All right, so Pastor Justin and Stephanie, you guys have some work to do with the hearts of those young people, so, of which I think my kids were a party to, so, okay, all right. No, sir, if you were here, uh, if, if, if you call this your church home and you weren't with us last weekend, you need to get that podcast and listen to it. We talked about how we want to see a, a Saturday Southside campus launch within the next 12 to 24 months. Come on. We're excited about that. We want to see a School of Leadership and Discipleship launch. We're going to begin that this September. We're going to see a nine-month internship program uh, that's going to start. And then we talked about how that uh, just for the next six years, uh, we really believe that God's going to show us how we can continue to, to launch campuses uh, in this region. So you've got 64 coming in from the west. You've got the HRBT to the east. You've got the Coleman Bridge to the north. And you've got the James River Bridge and the Monitor Merrimack to the south. And so uh, as a leadership team, we're praying, God, what do you want us to do inside of these five corridors and even outside of these five corridors? And so this is going to be an exciting six years uh, for us as a church. And so we're asking that you, if you call this your church home, that you're going to listen to that podcast so you can begin to pray about that vision and, uh, and, and what whether it's a quarter or whatever it is, that you can make a note to yourself somehow, some way that every day uh, that you're going to be praying about what God has for us uh, as we look into the beyond. So last weekend, you know, we kind of pushed the pause button on this series that we're in called Praxis. I'm going to explain a little bit about what that means, and, uh, and then also we're going to do a little bit of review since it's been a couple of weeks to kind of catch you up uh, if you were not with us uh, when we got started. So I, I want to just share, I, I put this together uh, just this afternoon, uh, I want to share a little bit about some thoughts about discipleship because for, for us as a church, this is a vital part of who we are. It's a vital part of, of who we are. And, and, and I think that for some people, and, and I, I've been around the church my whole life. I didn't make a decision to become a devoted follower of Christ. I didn't make a vow of devotion to Christ until I was 23 in, in December of 1990. But I, I grew up in the church. And, and, and one of my frustrations with the, with the church is that Christianity always just seemed so confusing to me. And, and I felt like it was confusing to so many other people too. And so we want to be a church that really has a, uh, an understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that Christianity cannot become, and it must not be, like I'm, I'm, I'm in the lobby waiting for an overdue appointment for heaven, and I'm just biding my time here. Right? You, you show up at the dentist office or the doctor's office or wherever you are, you're in the lobby, right? You're waiting, you're waiting, it feels like it's overdue. You're, you're, you're just sitting there waiting. For so many people, that's their Christianity. But Christianity, is, is heaven a huge part? It absolutely is. And we, we don't want to understate the, the meaningfulness of having an eternity that's promised to us. But while we're waiting, Jesus says, live! There's purpose and destiny that we're supposed to have this side of heaven. It's why our vision statement is heaven now, heaven forever. And so uh, there's, a, there's this phrase. It's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible in the Greek. It's kruptos anthropos cardia. It's the Greek for the hidden person of the heart. Peter gives us this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 3. He uses this phrase, the hidden person of the heart. That part of you and that part of me, it needs attention. That part of you and that part of me, if we neglect it, it will go into decline. 
Now, it's hard for us to, to see it because it's what, is what we would call our immaterial self. It's the eternal part of who we are. It's the spiritual part of who we are. And I think one of the reasons, God, we have these physical bodies is to remind us that the same way our physical body has need, so does our spiritual self. So this week, you know, we do a, a, a part of, of our family uh, plan is that, that we want to spend time with our kids individually. So I do a big day with each of our kids every year. So Claire just had hers this week. We did our, our day at the Capitol. So we were in Richmond all day. Uh, we homeschool as a family, and so it was homeschool day at the Capitol. So we were there uh, just from morning until evening, and we left at 7 in the morning to get back till 9.30 at night. And if you follow me on social media, you know there were some pictures of my feet. Which Sharon Thomas said, said that's risky because I made fun of David's feet last week and then I'm putting my feet out there. And so I was like, I, I squeaked by on that one. So, so anyway, so, so if you, you were there, right? We, I went there, I got a pedicure with my daughter. We are missing out, man. Can I just say? That salt scrub and the, and the lotion massage, right? My feet are like they're 14 years old again. I'm getting ready to turn 48. I'm, I'm just saying, guys, if you're missing out, if you're married or you have a daughter, you go next time. And you, 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 I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, they, they're experiencing something that we need more of, right? Your, 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 your body has needs, right? My knuckles, they were all cracking this week because it's been so cold. And my, right? you're, we, there's little things about our physical bodies we understand. We just fasted. We got hungry, right? If you don't get enough sleep, you're, you're grumpy. And if you don't think that you are, then you're grumpy and you're dishonest. So you, you with me? We understand there's, there's physical needs that we have. And part of that is to remind us we have spiritual needs too. And if we neglect those spiritual needs, then we will be in decline, in decline. I think there's so many models of discipleship for a time there, everybody called it spiritual formation, and that phrase kind of lost its excitement and enthusiasm. I think discipleship is the, is the best word, it's the perfect word, because that's what it means. It's asking the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to become like Jesus, to follow Jesus? And so many models, they're, they're doctrine-centric. It's all about what you believe. Beliefs are important. We have doctrines as a church. Part of discovering city life is talking about the things that we believe, but that cannot be at the center of your discipleship model. For many people, it's morality-centric. That's not good. Issues of morality, they're important. We talk about them as a church family. That cannot be the center. It cannot be the center of your discipleship model. In too many models, they elevate certain disciplines above others. I think that's troublesome. Because I think God looks at all of them. We're going to get into some of them tonight. We have 12. We call them pathways. We call them pathways because they take you somewhere. But I don't like prioritizing them or, or, or putting one above the other because it will give people a sense of permission to not do some of the ones later on the list. And you cannot be spiritually healthy and spiritually vibrant unless you have all 12 of what we call pathways, and some people call them spiritual disciplines. You cannot be spiritually vibrant if you don't have all 12 of these at work in your life. I think a lot of models do a really poor job of distinguishing between what's an experience and what's an activity. So much of what shapes us, so much of what, 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 what shapes our, our, our character is, is, is the hardships that we face. We talk about it in the church. Some of the, the suffering that we endure, I call it uh, a redemptive affliction. It's the pain that we endure in this life, not because we've been foolish, but because it's, it's divinely planned for us because, because something about character is formed in hard places. 
It's important to understand the difference between the, the experiences that I'm going to have in life and the activities that I've got to initiate in my life. See, because God initiates those experiences, but there's something while I'm moving from one experience to the, ne- the next that I need to be initiating myself. And for us as a church, we like to talk about what are the things that you and I should be doing, actively doing it. Again, we're going to get in there tonight. And I think too many models, they're just not comprehensive. They, they just don't give a complete picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so that's why we're spending so much time. We're going to be in it this week. We're going to be in it next week. And, and it could be, we could be in it the week beyond. And eventually we're going to get to fasting. Vanessa said, I hope you're talking about fasting tonight because I don't really want to be in there to hear that because that's really, that's really convicting, right? She's not in here, so we'll talk about it a little bit because I don't think she's going to listen to the podcast, so it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. The stakes are high, people. This idea of, 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 of what are we supposed to be doing while we're here, it matters. Because one day you and I are going to stand before Jesus and have to give an account for our lives. If you've made a vow of devotion to Jesus, you're not going to be judged whether or not you get to go to heaven or hell. That judgment is settled for you. It was settled on the cross 2,000 years ago. If you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, we, we have eternity is promised to us, but people make a mistake thinking that that means they're not going to be judged at all. That's why this text is so important for us. All people, it says, will be judged according to their deeds. And that word deeds in the Greek is the word praxis. That gives us this word that we're naming this model of discipleship. It carries with it a connotation of something that is ongoing. I think that God chose this word on purpose because he wants us to understand that we're going to be judged based on what characterizes our lives. He's not going to judge us. He's not going to determine our our. our, our, our our, uh, our conclusion about how we live based on that one bad day. He's also not going to determine it based on that one good day we had 10 years ago. Are you with me? It's, he's, what characterizes who you are day in and day out, it's the practice, it's the deeds of my life. If I give myself to the practice of imitating Christ, the day of my judgment will be one of hope and not despair. I'm not talking about being arrogant about that day, but I am talking about having a sense of expectancy that that day is going to be a good day for me, not a bad day. And we want you to look forward to that moment in time where you have to give an account for your life. Are there going to be mistakes? Are there going to be, are there going to be things that he's going to talk to us about that, that we could have done better? Absolutely. But, but there should be some sense of expectancy in you and some sense of expectancy in me that that's going to be a good day because I gave my whole life to be like Jesus. So we have this model. It's called the one, the six, the 12, and the 24. It's four numbers, and each one of those numbers tell us something about this journey of discipleship. So we did the one a couple of weeks ago. We get this idea of the one. It comes from 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, so just some quick recap. And you should imitate me. It's the Greek word mimites. Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. It's used six times in the New Testament. There's a couple of other references for you. Sometimes it's translated, follow my example. But, but here Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I think is saying this is the ultimate invitation that we've been given in this life. Even though you and I are going to be different in so many ways, we should 
all be the same in this one way, is that my ultimate purpose in life is to be like Jesus. And the only way that I can be like Jesus is if there are people who are a little bit farther along in their journey in front of me that I can learn from, and that also because I'm on this journey, there should also be some people that maybe are a little bit further behind me that I can inspire. And it should always start in your home. Can we just say that? If you're married, it's your, it's your, if you're a man, come on, it's your wife, it's, it's your, your children. There should be something inside of you as a man where you can say to your family, follow me as I follow Christ. It's the one. It's the ultimate imitation. We will not thrive in our hope of imitating Jesus without community. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 assumes our lives are immersed among the lives of other praxis-minded people. It assumes that our lives are immersed among the lives of other praxis-minded people. It is the ultimate invitation. Follow me as I follow Christ. If I give myself, come on, we're going to keep giving this phrase to you. If I give myself to the praxis of imitating Christ, the day of my judgment will be one of hope and not despair. All right, so a quick recap of the six. We talked a couple of weeks ago is that we like the idea of Jesus being all these things to us. We like the idea of him being my healer, my friend, my defender, shepherd, teacher, consoler, intercessor, mediator, savior, servant, light, way, and source, but we don't necessarily always like the idea of him being our master. The idea of master socially and politically, it's despicable, and it should be. It's a sin. It's egregious. It's ugly. Spiritually, it's a necessity. It is an absolute necessity for our spiritual life. Many people say it, and I would agree with it. Jesus can't be your savior until you're ready for him to be your master. There is something about Jesus where he has earned the right through the perfectness of who he is to step into your life and to step into my life and say, I need to be the master over you in every sense and in every way. So he has what I believe are six foundational commands. We've restated these commands through six phrases. Again, you, you, can, you can get this through the podcast. I'm just going to read through them because I want to get into the 12 uh, tonight. But the first one is this devotion to Christ in John 1.43. This is where Jesus says, follow me. There's intimacy with God, Mark 12.30. That's where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's John 13.34. We restate that as the care of others. That's where Jesus said, a new command I give to you to love others the way that I've loved you. And the last three are appetite for growth, which is where Jesus says to be perfect in Matthew 5, 48. There's diligence in mission, Mark 16, 15, where he says, go into all the world. And then Acts 1, 8, where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, equipped by the Holy Spirit. These six commands, I believe, create a foundation from which everything else of Jesus flows. So when I ask the question, what does it mean to imitate Christ, I think it looks like a life that's striving to fulfill these six commands. To look like Jesus means that I'm going to understand what these six things are asking of me. Jesus as my master looking at me and saying, go fulfill these six commands. Give your, give your life to these six things. I begin my journey. I begin my journey of following after Christ. If I accept the one, then I must fulfill the six. And to fulfill the six, I must walk in the 12. You cannot do any of this and go to heaven because going to heaven is about grace. You cannot do any of this and go to heaven because heaven is about grace. But we like to say, but you're not ever gonna bring heaven to earth unless you give your life to this journey. 
And not only that, when you get to heaven, there's a conversation that Jesus is going to have with you and that Jesus is going to have for me. And if you call this your church home, we want to be found faithful in helping you to be ready for that conversation that you're going to have. All right, so let's talk about the 12. These 12 we call them the pathways again. I don't like to call them disciplines because I, I, I believe that creates the wrong connotation. It creates the wrong perception. Do, do they require discipline? Absolutely. But we call them pathways because they will take you on this journey of fulfilling these six. If, you, if you're going to fulfill these six commands, you've got to walk. You must walk in these 12 pathways. All right, so we're going to work through these. We've got some time. We might not get through all 12. We'll, we'll see. But, but I'm going I'm to jump from Scripture and go to worship, and then I'm going to come back and hit Scripture because Chip, if Chip's in here, he came up during the worship service and had something he felt like God was stirring his heart to share. I said, well, I'm going to talk about worship. So is Chip in here right now? He's, all right, come on, come on up, Chip. I'm going to have you share what you were sharing with me during the worship service. You got this one, Ryan? You ready? All right. Come on, give Chip a warm city life welcome. Let me, let me just find my place here. It, um, when I came, I don't have time to tell you who I am, so I'm a little strange. Just please bear with me. Um, when, I was, when I came here tonight as was coming and you know normally I drive because you know I'm the man and that's what we do or but today it was real weird for me to say honey can you drive because I need to I need to look something up uh, and the thought that came to me from our it's kind of a spillover from last night in our in our life group about um, Paul and defending our faith and uh, this morning there's two things that reminded me of Paul where he spoke at length to King Agrippa, and King Agrippa just says, wow, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. But then there was another instance where Paul was in the prison at Philippi, yeah. and he had gotten beat. I mean, he, he was doing some awesome things and then just got beat for it. Uh, so there's a lesson in that for you for another time. Just let the Lord speak to you about that. But here he is not just in prison, but in deep prison. They said, put him in the in part, way down in there, and lock him up hard. The scripture says in Acts, Acts 16, this is where, if you're taking it, write it down, Acts 16, and you read that, and it talks about Paul and Silas being in there yeah. at midnight. They were praying Come on. and singing hymns. Now, those that look up there, there's, there's prayer and worship right in the middle of scripture and fasting. Okay, so this is like a meat sandwich. He's going to do that for you. But they were praying. They were praying and singing hymns. And in my life, those things are synonymous. Yeah. Because my declaring his worth, singing how good he is. And the story talks as, as they were doing this, a big earthquake happens. Shakes the place. And... You know the story. Read the story. But in my, uh, as I was reading this, and write in your Bible, if God speaks to you, write in it. It's okay to do that. Because I don't know when I wrote this, but these are the two notes that I put on here. One of them is, says, worship brings a shaking. Come on. The power of God will break shackles. And right next to that, I, I wrote, my praise will even release those that are around me. Come on. 
my praise because not only Paul and Silas's shackles were yeah. broken, but everybody's in that place was around them. I walked in here today and I had a real uneasy feeling about something. I don't know what it is, so if you ever see me just walking around a little agitated, that's just who I am. But as I, I was praying and I'm asking the Lord what is going on, and then I start to hear what is going on. Yeah. And this is what I want to say to you. The songs that we are singing, I, I, I need you to understand this is not a natural thing, but it's a supernatural That's thing. Good. Because worship, as in song like this, and we do this corporately, we're creating an environment for the King of Kings to come and sit among us. Come on. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. And as we build this foundation big enough for a throne that hold our king, we do this with worship. The yeah. psalmist says he inhabits the praises of his people. You build a throne. And what did we sing tonight? Glorious. Shout it out. We shout your name. We speak your praise because he's glorious. And these things are not just natural. They're supernatural. Because yeah. whether you know it or not, you are created in the image of God. God created his world with his words, and he's created you to do the same thing. So when you say these things, yeah. Jesus, we shout your name. Jesus, we make your praise. As you declare his worth in your life, you will create an environment where earthquakes will happen. Shatter, shackles will be broken, and his yeah. name will be brought up. This is what worship is all about. It is no longer natural for you, City Life, because God is placing, drawing a line in the sand, and he's wanting, he's wanting you to come up. Last year, the whole thing was come up, yep. come up, come up. And this is a place right here. He's fixing to tell you how we're going to do that. Come on. <laughs> Isn't that good? He was sharing with me during worship. I was like, come on, there's a spot. And my, we're talking about those very things. So you've got to come up. So I appreciate Chip being willing to come up spontaneously and just share some of those things that God was, was speaking to, to his heart. Let me, let me read you this verse out of Psalm 100. This is verse 1. It says, shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. Verse 2, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. The, the Psalm 100 starts with the word shout. It starts with the word shout. Now, is there a time and a place for worship that is quiet? Sure there is. And there's verses in the Bible that talked about, but, talk about that. But what I would say to you is that they're in the minority. There is a time and a place to be quiet. There is a time and a place to be reflective. But the majority of Psalms... Talk about a worship that is loud, that is impassioned, and that it, it is expressive. And, and so one of the things that frustrate me is that sometimes people look at, say, churches like ours, not just our church, but many churches like ours, and say, well, well, the worship you're doing, you're doing that because you're just trying to be like the world to relate to people. And I say, hey, God created worship like this long before the world even knew how to do it. Right? The, the, this kind of worship predates anything that is secular. When, when we read in the book of Psalms, we find what we do at our church, it's called Davidic worship. It's worship that relies on instruments. It's worship that has leaders. It's worship that is loud. It's worship that is impassioned. And it is worship that is expressive. Now, how impassioned you might become might be determined by your personality, but no matter what your personality is, you should at least cross the threshold of expressiveness. If, if people looking around the room can't figure out whether or not you are disinterested, then you've not yet crossed the threshold of expressiveness. You haven't. 
If you love Jesus in your heart, tell your face, right? <laughs> I, I, I should have some sense of this that matches this, that matches this. I, I cannot dance like David Godwood and I never will be able to, right? There's, there's limits based on my coordination that God gave me, right? So I'm, I recognize that there's varying degrees of expressiveness that will happen in the room, but all of us should at least get across the threshold. All of us should be willing to engage our physical bodies in this act of worship. It's part of how you and I were created, and I love what Chip shared. It's not just for you, it's for other people in the room. That we're invited into this place of worship, not just so that we can be awakened to his glory, not just so we can be awakened to the presence of a king who's already here, right? That's what we, we believe that worship awakens us to the presence of Christ who's already in the room. And, and when we begin to worship, we awaken ourselves, that immaterial part of who we are, the cryptos cardia, the hidden person of the heart. It awakens who we are to he who is in the room, and it can also begin to awaken other people. And all of a sudden, in a spiritual sense, chains of bondages and all kinds of stuff can just be broken in our lives. The kind of music we do, for us, that belongs to our young people. For us as a church, the, the kind of song, stylistically, we call it a generational tether. Too many churches should not be confused at why the next generation is not there when it's time for them to turn over the church because they never gave anything of the church to them while they were waiting. And we're not going to make that mistake as a church. There's parts of who we are as a, as, as a congregation that we want the, the next generation, even though they might be Esau's today, come on, one day they're going to be Jacob's. <laughs> right? So, so there's parts of the church we want to belong to the next generation. And, and, and you might say, well, nobody ever did that to me or for me. So, so you're going to let the mistakes of other people give you a sense of permission to repeat those mistakes? But what, what kind of Christianity is that? Even if we grew up in a church where nothing was ever given to us and our generation as young people, then let's say let's not ask our young people to suffer that same tragedy. We're, we're gonna have generational tethers as a church. You might come in and say, Fred, it's too loud. I'm gonna say, what? You're gonna say, it's too loud in here. I'm gonna say, what? It's too loud in here. I'm sorry, I can't hear you while we're being biblical. It's hard. It's hard for me to hear you while we're following what the Bible says about worship. I'm sorry right? We, they're, they're, we're, now, we understand, right? We understand that anything, you can take it too far, right? And so we have a responsibility to say, let's not go too far for just being extreme. We, we understand part of Christianity is being measured, but we're not going to let this idea of being measured rob us of what the Psalms tell us about worship. I, I, li I like to say to people, if, if there is something inside of you that's not ready to explode when we step into worship like we do, then you need a greater revelation of the glory of God. His glory is so great and so grand, it should cause us to feel like, I don't even know if this worship is even big enough for me to express the thoughts and the feelings that I have on the inside. If you don't feel that, go on a journey with us. We want you to find it. All right, let's talk about Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16. Oh, let me say this, part of worship. Just take your next step. Just take a step. 
For, for you, you might be a hands-in-the-pockets person. The next step for you just might be clapping your hands, right? Find a, find a next step that you can take. If you've never raised your hands, we, we joke all the time, just, just go palms out, right? You can stand like this, just, right? This is a great next step. I'm just saying, find a step that you can take. If you say, I'm not sure I can ever go there, right? It's hard to go from this, right, to David Godwin. We're going to keep picking on David, right? It's, it's a big leap, but, but you, can, you can take one step. And if you just keep taking one step, God will meet you in that step, and he'll take you to the next step. And then granted, I get it. At some point you might say, this is as far as I'm gonna go based on who I am, but get on the other side of the threshold of expressiveness and it could be a series of steps just until you get there. All right, scripture, 12 pathways. You gotta walk in all 12 of these. Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. There's things wrong in our lives, come on. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right, right? Because the Bible talks about sins of omission and sins of commission. The Bible helps us to understand the things that we should not do and it helps us to understand the things that we should do. Scripture is given to us to be authoritative in our lives. It's given to us to be authoritative. And I I put it on Instagram earlier today. The Bible will not be transformative in your life until you're ready for it to be authoritative in your life. The Bible will not be transformative in your life until you're ready for it to be authoritative in your life. Now, some of you here, I I believe this this part of this conversation is for some specific people that are here tonight. You're, you're, You're hung up with the Bible being authoritative because you're still trying to figure out whether or not it's perfect. Whether, what, what, what some people call the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe, as a church, as many churches, that it was perfect in its original form. But what we have today, they're copies. They're, they're copies. It's copy after copy after copy. Are there some grammatical errors? Yes, there are. Are, are there some copyist errors that exist? Yes, they do. If you want to learn more about that, you can pick up books like this by Doug Powell, Christian Apologetics, that talks a little bit about how we got the Bible that we have today. Alpha, which is a great series, a great curriculum. There's a whole section that talks about how we got to have the Bible that we have today. And and one of the reasons why the church, I think, has a problem with the secular world is the secular world is frustrated that sometimes we're not willing to be intellectually honest about some of the copyist errors that exist. You can acknowledge that they're copyist errors without sacrificing your conviction and its doctrinal purity. There is nothing imperfect about the doctrines of the Bible. There's nothing imperfect about the teachings of the Bible. And I would go as far to say, I believe that a perfect God can use an imperfect thing to bring me closer to perfection. I believe a perfect God can use an imperfect thing to bring me closer in my own journey to perfection. There has got to be some place in your life where you break free from the devil's trap of you chasing your tail of whether or not it should have been this article here or whether or not it was 10,000 people that died in the Bible or 30,000 people that died in the Bible. You can chase that tail around for the rest of your life. And the devil uses that as a trap to keep you from allowing the Bible to become authoritative to you. And when you look at the Bible and how many people God used to give it to us, and how many times it's been copied over, over, over century after century after century, 
as close to perfection that it is, it's way past the threshold of miraculous. Can we just agree on that? Right? It's already way past the threshold of miraculous, even with some of the small things that we might be able to take issue with it. I'm telling you, something changed in my life when I was 23 where I didn't care about those questions anymore and I was willing to embrace the authority that the Bible needed to happen. Jesus becoming my master and his word becoming an authority in my life. Can you imagine being at your house and a police officer knocking on your door and him telling you a story that your family has been in a horrific car accident, they're all okay, but they're at the hospital and they, he needs you to get in the car to go with the hospital with him, but in his own just sense of anxiety, he talked about a car that was green and then he talked about a car that was blue. Would the first question be out of your mouth? Could you go back to, was the car green or blue? Right? He would say, what is wrong with you, man? Right? And sometimes that's how we treat Scripture. Was it 10,000 or was it 30,000? I need to know. God says, well, are, are you kidding me? Are, are you kidding me, right? The, 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 the doctrinal purity of the Bible, there's no question about it. So there's this one detail about a number that's hanging you up on your journey. As a devoted follower of Christ, God says, hey, let's move past that together, right? God says to you and he says to me, I don't hold you to that kind of standard in your life. Stop holding them to it. God uses imperfect people to do incredible things. The Bible is authoritative. It is from God. It was birthed by him. And I believe that in his sovereignty, he's able to overcome our imperfections to get us the Bible that we're supposed to have in the generation that we live. Did we leave anything out? All right. Jamie and I worked through that earlier today. I said, I'm going to ask you if I left anything out. All right. Give the thumbs up. Prayer. All right, let's talk about prayer. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Oh, this is a good verse. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as, as you live in Christ Jesus. This is another trap the devil gets you in. Well, I don't need to pray, right? Why do I need to tell God things that he already knows? Because so much of prayer has nothing to do with you, with him. It has everything to do with you. Something changes in your heart when every day you bring yourself to a conversation with your creator, your loving father. Is there a part of prayer that's declarative? declarative? Yes, there is. That's another sermon for another time. Is there a part of prayer that is part of resisting the enemy? Yes, that's another sermon for another time. Is there part of prayer, there there are prayers that we're supposed to stand in faith and believing and we see things change? Yes, that's another sermon for another time. But there is a part of prayer which I believe is the foundational part of prayer that is relational. It's about you building intimacy in your heart and a love relationship with him because you talk to him all the time. We're going to get into this in a couple of weeks. See, part of the principles that govern the pathways is that as I get this pathway working in my life, this pathway flourishes. My worship life goes up as my prayer life excels. See, the more I pray and the more I read God's word, the more excited I am in worship because the greater the revelation I have of his glory. All the pathways are interconnected with each other. As I get more advanced in one, the others come along and they all touch each other in that way. Fasting. Ezra 8, 23. 
So we fasted and earnestly prayed that our God would take care of us. Listen to this last part. And he heard our prayer. Fasting is one of the most neglected pathways in modern Christianity. That we just went on this fast, 21-day fast together as a church. When we get through this Praxis series, we're going to get into a couple of weeks where we, we talk specifically about fasting, working out of Isaiah. Fasting has got to be a regular part of your life as a devoted follower of Christ because when you begin to give yourself to fasting, as we'll talk about when we get there, is that it teaches you how to have dominion over your physical self. Our physical appetites, right? What does the Bible say? The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. They are, our, our natural physical appetites are powerful things. Our emotional appetites are powerful things. Our intellectual appetites are powerful things. God has given you those things so that you will have dominion over them so that they will serve you and that you will not serve them. And one of the reasons why people's appetites are out of control is because fasting is not a practice pathway in their life. A person who fasts on a regular basis throughout their whole life is a person that learns how to be in control of themselves. And when you begin to have dominion over yourself, right, I'm telling you, your prayer life begins to flourish because now the thoughts that you have while you're praying just find their way to a place of understanding what God is saying to you. You tracking with me? There's such an interconnectedness with this physical part of who we are and the immaterial part of who we are and these pathways that God gives to us. It's not as though he said, let's just, we gotta keep them busy. Right? Let's just give them some stuff to do until they get here. Right? Is that what he did? Of course not. He says, I want them to flourish. I want them to thrive. I want them to live. I want them to drink deep from every experience they can have that side of eternity. And so he's come up with these things that we call pathways to take us deep into this life as a devoted follower of Christ. The woman at the well, right? Jesus talks with her. What does he say? He says, I'm telling you, woman, that if you give your heart to me as your Savior, springs of living water will well up inside of you. Is Jesus just having a day of exaggeration? Is, is he given to a hyperbole? Or is he trying to help us to understand how fulfilling this existence can be? When, when you think about your life, does it feel like springs of living water welling up inside of you. And if it doesn't, I think what God is saying to you, get to work. Get busy in these pathways. Begin to go after these things. Now, it cannot begin unless you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, which is all things start with grace. So don't misunderstand me. It's only through grace that the Spirit of God can get inside you to begin with. But if your idea of Christianity is, God, okay, do the rest for me, I'm telling you you're going to live an uneventful spiritual life. He says to you and he says to me, give your life to the work of these pathways. When I read people like the Apostle Paul that Chip referenced, when we look at the early apostles like Peter and John, I'm telling you, they were spiritually active people. And there was a connection between the work that they were willing to do with these pathways and the life that they lived with their creator. All right, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. We're gonna save those, those next eight for next week because I wanna get to this last little part.
See, see, every week as we're reading through the, the Bible, we pick this plan, you know, we pick a different plan every year, and so we're doing the, the, what we call the beginning plan this year, where we start in Genesis and go to Revelation. So I'm just saying it every week. If, if you've not started that plan with us, start it. Don't, don't feel like you have to catch up, because then you're going to give up. Just start with tomorrow, whatever that day's reading is, and just keep moving forward with us. And so every week, I'm just praying, God, is there, what, what in the reading this week, is there something in there that you have for us? And I'm just believing God. I don't know how many weeks it's going to last, but every week, he's been giving us some things, and so I just want to create a moment of the service where we could speak to these things that I believe that God is saying to us. And so when, when I was in Exodus 28, Exodus 28, 31 this week, it, it's talking about all the details, right? Which I, I know some of the things in the Bible can feel laborious, but something inside of us needs to stop and say, if God put it there, there's something in there for me. You with me? And so don't, don't just push through those things too quickly. If you get to those things that feel a little bit laborious, then just begin to pray, God, what in here would you want me to see? And, and so we preached on this a, a few years ago, but in Exodus 28, 31, and when we got there, it just reminded me of that service, which is why this box is up here tonight, which we're gonna go to there in, in our worship in just a minute. But it talks about part of the priest's garment is supposed to be seamless. In Exodus 28, it talks about that, that all the, the different parts of the regalia, part that they, uh, that they wear, there's all this specific instruction, and, and, and all of that is prophetic in some sense. And, so, and, and one of them is a tunic that is supposed to be seamless. It's just going to have a hole that's cut out, right, for their head to come through and for their arms, and then the bottom is open. And then when you get to John 19, 23, as Jesus is on the cross, John and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes to us and he says, hey, the Roman soldiers were gambling for a trophy that they could take home. And one was this tunic that Jesus wore. And then John just, it seems like a casual mention, but there's very little in the Bible that's casual. It says, and it was a seamless garment. That detail is given to us because God's trying to teach us something about grace. The reason why that garment is seamless is because when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, he does not apportion his grace out to you a piece at a time. The garment of grace from the moment you become a devoted follower of Christ, he just slips that whole thing all over you. He doesn't say like a seamstress would need that you get a this patch for this part and that patch for that part and then over time if you do all the right things then you'll you'll get to patch together a tunic that's big enough that's going to be enough grace for you to have no 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 his grace is seamless and he gives it all to you from the very first day i don't earn it i don't work for it i i work for the things that we've been talking about earlier but i don't work for this it's all because Jesus died for you, and it's all because Jesus died for me. And so I've, keep, I've kept this box in my office, and Debbie Bell made all these for us. They're these little blue swatches. And when you get into Exodus 28, it talks about that part of the tunic. It was a, a royal blue. And so I'm just going to leave this box up here. And We all took home a piece of this box with us to remind us that the grace of God is complete for me from the first day. Because the devil likes to remind you of all the reasons why you don't deserve his grace. And when he does, it should make you smile because he's reminding you about why grace is such a beautiful thing. And so if you're here, and I believe that there's some people here tonight that you're wrestling with shame. You're wrestling with the struggles of the stories of your past. And for some of you, you're wrestling with the struggles of your story of today. 
And I believe that God wanted to bring us to a moment tonight where you could be reminded that God loves you just the way you are. And that his forgiveness is complete enough, it's whole enough to cover everything from your past, everything from your day, and everything in your tomorrow. So we're gonna step into this moment of worship. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and they're gonna bring the lights back down. There's lots of room up here. And uh, I'm just gonna invite you, if you're here tonight and you just need to be reminded of the fullness and the completeness of God's grace, I'm gonna invite you to come and take a piece of that tonight. It might be, it might be, that you're gonna pick this up for somebody else that you're praying for. It might be that you know somebody who needs to experience these things that we're talking about, having a greater revelation of the grace of God, and that you can pick this up and it's gonna become a name for you of a person that you can lift up in a place of prayer that they would come to their place of embracing his grace. Let's worship together. We are.